0: Welcome to ALEC Across the States. I'm your host, Dan Reynolds. Today, we're going to be having a very awesome conversation with two experts in the medical field. First, joining me from Texas is Representative Tom Oliverson. He's an ALEC member and an American anesthesiologist who represents Texas's 130th district. Representative Oliverson, thank you so much for calling into the podcast.
1: It's my pleasure to be with you today. Thank you very much.
0: Of course. Also joining the podcast is David Swordlow from Pfizer. He's a senior director there and he's their COVID vaccine global medical lead, as well as covering many other efforts at Pfizer. David, thank you so much for joining today. Um, we're going to be talking about vaccines. You work in the Pfizer vaccines division. Thanks so much for taking some time today. I know it's going to be very important for our listeners to hear what we're doing right now with COVID vaccination. So, thank you. It's my pleasure. So, before we get into the nitty-gritty of, you know, any policy talk or anything specific, can you talk to our listeners a little bit about the COVID-19 vaccine that you're currently working on with BioNTech?
2: Sure, thanks so much for inviting me to speak with you. It's really exciting to be able to share some of our enthusiasm for working on a vaccine that may help to stop this terrible pandemic. As you know, there are almost 200 vaccine candidates being developed by companies all over the world using many different vaccine technologies. Ours is a messenger RNA vaccine that was developed by the German company BioNTech. BioNTech began working on their vaccine after the genetic sequence of the pandemic virus, SARS CoV 2, was published by Chinese investigators in early January. Subsequently, several candidates or versions of the vaccine were tested in animals and found to be safe and produce a strong immune response. Four of these vaccine candidates, again, we can call them versions of the vaccine, were then tested in human volunteers. The results of the initial studies were recently published in the journal Nature. One of these candidates, which we call BNT162B2, or B2, demonstrated a good safety profile and induced a strong immune response and was selected to be used during the next stages of development.
0: So where exactly is it in uh, the development process right now?
2: So we're currently conducting what we call a phase 2B3 large clinical trial to test the safety and efficacy of our vaccine in persons between the ages of 18 and 85. It will include up to 30,000 participants from almost 40 U.S. states and several other countries. The study is a randomized, placebo-controlled, double-blinded study. So what, what does that mean? Well, Half of the participants will receive the B2 vaccine and half will receive a placebo. Neither the investigators nor the participants will know whether they received the vaccine or the placebo. Then we will monitor participants to see if any develop symptoms of COVID. If they develop symptoms, we will test them using PCR, a laboratory test you're all familiar with, to see if they are infected with SARS CoV. In the end, we evaluate all those who developed COVID and determine what proportion were vaccinated and what proportion had received placebo. Using simple math, we can then determine how effective the vaccine is. Meanwhile, we will be carefully monitoring all the participants to see if any safety issues arise. Of course, we don't anticipate that, but we will be observing and evaluating carefully. So...
0: When do you expect to know whether it's safe and effective? I know that's something that is always on the mind of Americans, say, when we're thinking about a vaccine.
2: So, we are hoping to know by the fall, maybe even as early as October, if the vaccine is effective, if, if everything goes right. Um, we will be observing the participants continuously for any signs of safety issues during that whole time.
0: I, I do want to transition just for a moment. Representative Oliverson, this podcast is being recorded only with audio, but we record them over Zoom. And when Representative Oliverson joined us, he was fully suited out in his scrubs. So this is a question for both of you guys, but I do want to start with Representative Oliverson. Can you take us through and give us an overview of what your typical day is like now? And I say typical, maybe with quotes around it during the COVID-19 pandemic. So what's
1: your day like going on right now? Yeah, I appreciate that. So we're essential medical, you know, medical personnel, essential personnel. I mean, I think at this point, I, I would argue that I think anyone who's in the economy is an essential person, but we've been doing this since mid-March, essentially. So essentially, we're functioning as we always have, uh, doing surgeries. I'm an anesthesiologist, so my job is to make sure that people are protected and are able to safely go through, you know, what may be a very scary thing for them in that surgery, uh, and that they wake up and they're comfortable and they don't have a lot of pain and their symptoms are resolved. So I'm still doing my job. In most respects, it looks very much like it did pre coronavirus. There are a few important differences. We wear masks everywhere. You know, We do normally wear masks in the operating room for sterility, uh, but now we wear masks for infection control. So anytime you're in the building, you're wearing a mask and our patients are too. Everybody's temperatures are checked, and we you know verify that people are symptom free. And in a lot of facilities I work, they are actually screening patients for coronavirus uh, before you know they are allowed to have surgery. The other thing that's different for us is that, so I'm an anesthesiologist, which means a lot of times when patients fall asleep, I end up placing some sort of uh, breathing device into their airway to help them breathe under anesthesia. And as you can imagine, because coronavirus, uh, COVID-19, is a respiratory-borne virus, that's a very high-risk procedure. So in addition to wearing a regular mask, I wear goggles and I wear a a, a N95 mask to make sure that I am protecting myself and everyone in the room with me, even if they're not standing over the airway, is also doing the same. So those are some things that are kind of different. But other than that, I would say that hospitals are proceeding very much as they were. And if I could throw one other thing in there, because I know this is uh, very much on everybody's mind right now with uh, you know the potential of students heading back to school, I've been doing a little bit of digging. I can tell you that the occupational exposure rate of coronavirus 19 for healthcare workers uh, is around 1%. So of the people who end up catching the virus, who work in a hospital or a surgery center, only about 1% of those people are actually getting it at work. The other 99% are getting it at home, at the grocery store, out at parties or gatherings or whatnot in their daily lives. So with proper precautions of wearing a mask and doing all the things that we're supposed to be doing, we have conclusively shown in healthcare that if you follow those steps, your risk of contracting the virus, even if you're around the virus or exposed to the virus, is about 1%, so pretty low.
0: Huh, yeah, that's that's really interesting. David, what is your typical day like? And again, putting some scare quotes around typical now during the COVID-19 pandemic.
2: Well, you know, the whole vaccine team has literally been working 24 seven to be able to develop and test this vaccine rapidly so you know we can help bring it into the pandemic. The group actually making the vaccine and the groups conducting the clinical trials and the people working with the FDA and regulatory bodies I've in particular been working days, nights, and weekends since at least March. And our colleagues in Germany have also been working full-time on this vaccine for many months. But despite all the work, it is exciting to be able to help in really what's the scientific effort of our lifetimes. Yeah.
0: David and uh, Representative Oliverson, why do you think this virus has been so hard to tackle?
2: Well, I could um, answer first. Um, you know, in recent years, we've, set, we've faced several pandemic threats or even pandemics. You know, the influenza H1N1 pandemic in 2009 was caused by a very transmissible virus, but it wasn't very severe. There was the SARS outbreak of 2002, 2003, and the MERS coronavirus outbreak, which started in 2012, were severe, but they, in the end, they were not very transmissible, and both have been contained. One of the reasons they could be contained was because infected patients had severe disease and thus could be identified and placed in isolation where they wouldn't make others sick. Further, both SARS and MERS viruses tended to be located deep in the lungs of patients. So it was not easy to spread. But the current pandemic virus, SARS-CoV-2, as you know, is different because it is both severe and transmissible. It's harder to control for many reasons, One is because many infected people don't have any symptoms at all, so they can transmit to others without even knowing it. Further, the virus tends to be located in large quantities in the upper respiratory tract, the nose, instead of the deep lungs, so it's easier to spread to others. So these factors and others make controlling the virus difficult.
0: So you began with a discussion or rather mention of mRNA technology and how it's an existing technology, and that's the type of vaccine that you're developing right now. Can you talk to our listeners briefly about what is mRNA technology, and then, you know, maybe some instances or if it has or has not been used successfully in the past?
2: Yeah, thanks. Um, you know, there are a variety of strategies to develop a vaccine against a virus using an inactivated virus or a weakened virus or protein-based vaccines. Most of these require the researchers to actually possess and be able to grow the actual organism. Nucleic acid vaccines, of which mRNA is one, don't require the actual virus. All you need to know is the genetic code. So after China published the code, BioNTech was able to start work on the virus without having to obtain and grow the virus. So it's safer, quicker, and faster to make a messenger RNA vaccine than other types. You know, as a reminder, human cells use messenger RNA messages as the template to produce all the everyday proteins the body needs. So with messenger RNA vaccines, the researcher takes the genetic code of a particular protein or antigen critical to the virus and inserts that into the messenger RNA message or template of the vaccine. In this case, BioNTech chose the code for the spike protein. Which is the portion of the virus that looks like the crown that you've all seen in images of the virus and allows the virus to attach to human cells and and then infect humans. So, anyway, the messenger RNA is injected into the upper arm, hidden in a lipid particle. And then the vaccine's messenger RNA message is taken up by human cells. So, then the body thinks that this message is like any other messenger RNA molecule that it uses to produce everyday proteins. And therefore, It's tricked into producing many copies of the SARS spike protein. But then your body realizes that the spike protein is foreign and shouldn't be there and creates antibodies to it, which will lead to immunity. If you're then exposed to SARS CoV, the hope is that the antibodies will neutralize the virus and prevent you from being infected. Um, You know, messenger RNA vaccines have been made by several companies against many types of infections and have also been used against cancers. So, although they have been given safely to many individuals, Um, They have not yet been licensed for use. So when we're talking about the
0: development of a vaccine, we're talking about an entire process, an approval process. Can you talk to our listeners about the typical development and approval process for a vaccine? And then we can get into a little bit maybe on the timelines and then, you know, steps required by the FDA, I'm sure our listeners would be interested in learning about.
2: Yeah, you know, vaccine development requires a multi-step process, First, the vaccine is developed, and then um, it's tested in animals. If it's safe and appears to protect animals, it advances to phase one, then phase two, and then phase three testing in volunteers. So phase one testing occurs in tens to hundreds of patients and evaluates the safety of a vaccine. Phase two is in hundreds to thousands of patients and tests for safety and immunogenicity. In other words demonstrating that the vaccine recipients develop an immune response. Phase three tests safety and efficacy, that is proving that the vaccine works and protects against illness. Afterwards, in the United States anyway, FDA will license the vaccine if it has demonstrated safety and efficacy. Then CDC will make recommendations specifying who should receive the vaccine. So, even after the vaccine is licensed and widely used, there are systems in place to monitor vaccine safety and effectiveness.
0: So then how long does it typically take to develop a new vaccine?
2: It usually takes about 10 to 15 years to develop and test a vaccine and at a cost of about a billion dollars.
0: Hmm. Wow. So then, you know, maybe from a top level, high level, broadly I'm sure there are a lot, and we could probably talk for hours about this next question, but what are the steps required by the FDA in advance of approval that are typically
2: in place? Well, companies work closely with FDA at every stage of vaccine development. Before phase one studies, um, FDA will look at all the animal and laboratory data and decide if the vaccine meets preset criteria to be safely given to humans. Similarly, before phase two or three can start, FDA reviews all the available safety and immunogenicity data. And then after phase three, a licensure package is submitted by the manufacturer to FDA. FDA then will license the vaccine if it meets all the pre-specified measures for vaccine safety and efficacy.
0: Representative Oliverson, as someone who's you know really on the ground, just broadly, talk to us about what a vaccine would mean both in the medical field and then also as a state legislator for your constituents?
1: I think one of the issues that we see with this virus, and I think David gave a very good summary of, of why this virus is such a problem. But the other thing with regards to this particular virus is that it's, it's a new virus. And you know, we call it the novel virus. But I think what we mean by that essentially is that there's not really any immunity out in the community. And so anyone and everyone is susceptible unlike a lot of the other viruses that we see, you know, where there's some level of immunity. So, so a vaccine then becomes critically important. You know, I was thinking about this the other day. We, we often talk, and I, and I know in, in my state and probably other states, there are those that decide for whatever reason that they don't want to be vaccinated for things like measles or, uh, or tetanus or whatnot, um, or may have an allergy and can't be, uh, or may, you know, show a poor immunologic response. And the reason that they're okay functioning in society essentially is because most people have some level of immunity from vaccination to that virus. And so the odds that that unvaccinated or unsuccessfully uh, vaccinated person is going to become exposed to the virus and catch it is much less. And Unfortunately, that just doesn't exist uh, with the covid nineteen uh, virus. We just don't we don't have that herd immunity in the community. I know that's something that's been talked about in the media a lot. And so being able to um, to have a vaccine that could prevent people from getting the virus, I mean, that that becomes the surest, best way to establish that immunity within the community that actually reduces the spread. So instead of, you know, visiting a nursing home and infecting, you know, 90% of the people in the nursing home with, you know, a, a certain mortality rate, maybe you have one or two people that contract the virus, or maybe nobody does. Um, and I think the other thing that's important, um, and I'm speaking a little bit more as a scientist and a policymaker, but I think this is something we have really yet to realize on the policy side, but it's going to become evident in the next five to 10 years, I believe. And that is that I'm I'm hearing from many of my colleagues that uh, there are long-term sequelae uh, complications from being infected with this virus and Mm -hmm. that that there's a certain percentage of the population that even though they recover, um, they may have permanent damage to organs uh, as a result of being exposed to this virus. And so, you know, just the ability to prevent that native infection, uh, which could be a lot more complicated and a lot more costly down the road than just simply getting sick and recovering. Um, that's a big deal uh, to be able to avoid that infection. It's almost uh, to, to me it's starting to sound more and more almost like like a polio uh, where people you know contracted polio and and some did okay and some had permanent lifelong disability from it uh, mm. where it, whereas you know when the vaccine became available and people were vaccinated against it then you know, we could essentially be in a position as a country to ensure that nobody uh, had long-term sequelae. So, you know, I think the jury's still out on that. I always like to remind everybody in policymaking to please stop following Twitter and Facebook (laughs) as your source of medical news. I am incredibly, incredibly frustrated, uh, even with uh, many in the research community With this desire to sort of pre-publish results before they go through a proper peer review process and are published in a peer-reviewed medical journal, so I just like to kind of remind everybody of that. But uh, but yeah, I I, I do think that there's significant societal benefit to having herd immunity to this virus as promulgated by a vaccine, as opposed to actually being infected and you know contracting it.
0: Yeah. Thank you, David. We were talking about you know the typical development and approval process timeline and also you know steps required by the FDA but during COVID-19 you know timelines have been accelerated we see that on the news we've seen that it's pretty clear that everyone wants this to happen as quickly as possible to develop the vaccine so how have companies like Pfizer been able to speed up the development of steps for your COVID-19 vaccine
2: yeah, thanks. Um, companies, including ours, have compressed vaccine timeline from years to months without missing any safety steps. Our company has leveraged decades of experience developing, testing, and manufacturing vaccines. Most mo- notably, we have been doing things simultaneously instead of one step at a time. For example, in our phase one trial, we, we tested four different vaccine we'll versions. versions instead of doing four sequential studies. So we did them all together instead of doing one at a time. Companies are starting to ramp up vaccine manufacturing facilities even before they know their vaccine will be licensed. They're manufacturing the vaccine at risk, we call it. Mm -hmm. Um, So companies are willing to take the chance that if the vaccine is successful, they will be able to start delivering the vaccine almost immediately. If the vaccine is not successful, they have lost a good deal of money but given the circumstances, it's, it's worth the risk. Planning for allocation and distribution is also being done at the same time as the development. So the vaccines can be distributed as soon as the vaccines are approved. So what's
0: different or the same about the pathway to approval that the FDA is requiring?
2: Yeah, um, you know, F- FDA has repeatedly said that they will not be taking any shortcuts. Vaccines will all have to prove they are safe and efficacious. Like us, they're willing to work overtime to turn around evaluations and review paperwork in real time. In, in the usual drug development you know, journey, the process of preparing regulatory data packages to submit to the FDA and then waiting back to hear is, you know, could typically can take months. But with all hands on deck, regulators are responding to data very quickly, often in real time to help keep trials running as quickly as possible.
0: Yeah. Representative Oliverson, as a policymaker, as a state legislator um, from Texas, what's your reaction to seeing the FDA, you know, speed up development times and, you know, double down on their hours and work overtime and things like that to make sure that we get this done?
1: I think it's incredible. And I couldn't be prouder of the work that our biotech companies are doing. And I'm very appreciative of the fact that the FDA has accelerated this process. I mean, this is uh, this is just an example of of almost kind of like a uh, you know a, a World War II type mobilization effort here at home, where hmm. where in the whole industry is essentially pulling together to get this done because it's that important. And I do think it is a national security type issue. So I'm very proud of the work that they're doing. I'm grateful that the president and his administration saw fit to create this Operation Warp Speed to kind of give everybody the flexibility and and the resources necessary to get this done, you know, priority number one as quickly as possible.
0: Yeah. David, how can people be assured that a potential COVID-19 vaccine, if approved, will be safe and effective, given what, you know, we've been discussing, some people might see as an expedited timeline?
2: Well, the number of participants who will be observed um, after vaccination to assess safety will be the same number usually required by the FDA to license a vaccine under non-emergency circumstances. There will be no shortcuts in terms of safety and effectiveness. And in fact, with this in mind, the FDA has set a high bar for safety and efficacy. We'll be monitoring for signs of any safety risks at every step in the development. In addition to our own safety experts, Our large vaccine trial is being overseen by an independent data monitoring committee, an outside group of experts who closely monitor patient safety and efficacy during the study. And um, any safety concerns will be rapidly reviewed with with FDA.
0: Great. And then we were discussing, you know, the mindset of looking long-term when it comes to COVID-19. So how are you addressing any concerns for potential long-term adverse effects of a vaccine especially if, you know, based on what you're saying here, there are no apparent short-term problems?
2: Well, all persons vaccinated in all our trials will be monitored for safety concerns for an extended time, even after the vaccine is shown to be effective. In addition, FDA and CDC have several very sophisticated safety monitoring systems that are meant to identify any safety signals once the vaccine is approved. We may be conducting post-marketing safety and effectiveness studies as well. Hmm,
0: Great. I know uh, many companies, just want to briefly cover this, including Pfizer, have publicly committed to delivering millions of doses of a uh, vaccine, if approved by the end of the year, by end of 2020. Just briefly describe to our listeners you know, how Pfizer or another similar company is able to manufacture and deliver a vaccine so quickly with that, you know, such a large quantity.
2: Yeah, Pfizer has decades of experience making vaccines and, and a large manufacturing capacity with multiple facilities that produce millions of doses of vaccines and other medicines every year and all of that is being leveraged to produce large numbers of vaccine doses in record time with the goal of helping prevent illnesses and deaths and hopefully put an end to this pandemic
0: yeah one final thing on this before i go to our final notes from both of our guests um, we're getting to the end here i want to be respectful of everyone's time thank you very much for for listening to our podcast today david are you surprised at all by the way, that companies and uh, regulatory agencies have been able to rise to the challenge of developing vaccines for this pandemic?
2: You know, in, in the midst of this terrible pandemic, it has been exhilarating scientists, companies, universities, public health agencies, regulatory agencies, all working together to share data, methods such as serologic assays, and insights from early vaccine studies, to be sure a a vaccine can be developed as quickly as possible. I think advancements in molecular biology techniques over the past few decades have created the possibility of using technology to make vaccines that really would have been unimaginable just a few years ago. So it it is very exciting to see everyone working together.
0: And I know, uh, Representative Oliverson, you covered this briefly, but what's your reaction to the way that companies, regulatory agencies, and Especially, you know, from your perspective, your fellow medical professionals, and then also policy experts and state legislators. What's it been like seeing their response?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question. And look, I think it's all positive. And speaking with my uh, policymaker hat on here, but from the perspective of a physician, I think it's really, really important. We spend a lot of time talking about um, how to deliver cost savings to patients and medications, and you know, making sure that you know, we're doing something to address the rising costs of prescription drugs, which I think is, is a huge problem, right? But this is the other thing that we often hear from in our pharmaceutical industry folks that I just want to point out and make sure everybody can kind of have that aha moment. You know, uh, we talk about this a lot where a company is willing to basically risk and sort of go out on a limb and go out there and develop uh, a product like this and have it to market extremely quickly, these things don't just, much like a defense industry, these kind of things don't just materialize out of thin air. Um, the reason that Pfizer can do this, as David said, is because they have decade, not only decades of experience manufacturing vaccines, but they have facilities spread across the United States and probably even the world that are already working on things like this because you know, there's a free market principle in effect here to where A company like Pfizer sees a need, fills a need, and the market rewards them for that need. You know, if we were to go to a single-payer type system um, where everything was sort of cost controls and, you know, all about um, whatever the government says you're going to get, and I think you lose a lot of this flexibility. I think you lose a lot of the ability to ramp up quickly and be able to rise to these challenges. And so I just think it's one of those things that we shouldn't lose sight of the fact as we're pursuing, you know, reform within the prescription drug community that we we don't take for granted that the industry that we have here in the United States, there's some real blessings that come along with the ingenuity and the free market principles that they operate in, the ability to get stuff like this done because it's the right thing to do. And I would go as far as to say my, my guess is they probably feel very much like I feel as a doctor that, you know, this is a calling too. you know, what we're doing here, we're doing for the greater good, we're doing for humanity. So it's not something that we're, uh, you know, have to have our arms twisted into being willing to rise up and to put everything else on hold in order to get this done, because this is what, you know, Americans really need right now in the healthcare system. And I think, you know, the industry and, and all healthcare in general in the United States, that, that's kind of our sort of our underlying DNA is that it is a calling. Uh, and we rise to those challenges and we meet them because it's the right thing to do. Yeah, I completely agree.
0: As we finish up, I do want to give both of you guys a moment for your Final thoughts? Anything else you'd like to mention? Um, the listeners of Across the States are people just like you. They're either policy experts, state legislators themselves, or just very interested folks into what's going on in state houses. So to your audience, here's your moment. You know, what else should they know?
2: Well, you know this pandemic is unprecedented during our lifetimes, and whole societies have been shut down, and there have been incredible hardships placed on families and people's livelihoods. We've lost untold members of the greatest generation, people of color, healthcare workers, and so many others. And we're all working 24-7 to create a safe and effective vaccine that people can trust that will help us end the, you know, the worst pandemic that we have faced.
1: I think there's two things I, w- I would just leave everybody with as, as food for thought. One is that um, you know, I was speaking a second ago about the importance of of costs in, in the pharmaceutical space. And I think traditionally, we have tended to look at things such as outsourcing our manufacturing of pharmaceuticals as a way to lower costs, whether that be importation of medications or manufacturing of, you know, primary precursors for the manufacturing of medications to you know, places around the world that may not necessarily be, you know, like China, for example, may not necessarily be our geopolitical ally. I think now we're waking up uh, having a great awakening to the fact that, um, you know, the pharmaceutical industry and the pharmaceutical supply chain really is an issue for national security. It really is when something like this comes along, the ability to produce these medications, to do it domestically, to have control of the supply chain It's important and that requires a proper investment, uh, much like any other defense industry. Uh, And so I I think I'm glad to see, I believe the administration uh, last week had awarded uh, some contracts to the Kodak company to begin manufacturing some of these precursors that we need for various pharmaceuticals in the United States. And I'd like to see more of that. I'd like to see the conversation about importation of pharmaceuticals shift to a legitimate conversation about the security and the integrity of the supply chain itself. And then finally, let me just say that, again, and I mentioned this earlier, but it's just something that I'm really deeply disturbed as a scientist and as a policymaker by, and that is the uh, large degree of interference that social media has provided to the legitimate process of scientific inquiry and discovery. We depend in the modern world, science depends on the ability for discoveries to be analyzed, not just by the people doing the study, but by other experts in the field to confirm their findings and to make sure that their findings are reproducible. I mean, the reason we know about gravity functioning the way that it functions and the reason that that's scientific fact is because it's highly reproducible. And I've been very, very disturbed during this coronavirus pandemic at the number of false articles, you know, things that have basically been put out on Twitter that have not been peer-reviewed, that have not been published, um, that are sort of getting out there, and then somebody's hijacking them for political purposes. And people are believing that, you know, as social media becomes a great source of news. And I also would add to that that it's even more disturbing to me to see prestigious medical journals like The Lancet, Uh, Like the New England Journal of Medicine, have to retract studies uh, because there were problems with studies that went through peer review process related to coronavirus, where there were actual intentional fraud being committed by the researchers. All of these things jeopardize our entire understanding of medical discovery. If we don't have a process for scientific discovery and inquiry that uses that same scientific method that people learned about in high school, and that's not followed rigorously, then that really calls into question everything that we know, that we think we know about the discovery. Uh, It becomes more of a truth is relative versus truth is absolute kind of situation. And that scares me terribly. And so I would just ask everybody out there listening to be incredibly cautious about using medical journals and scientific information as a basis for your political policymaking be sure that it's been properly vetted. Be sure that it has been published in a peer-reviewed journal, that it has withstood the test of time, and as David alluded to earlier, contains the magic words, which is prospective, randomized, controlled trial. Observational retrospective studies on whether this drug works or this does or not. Those are the most unreliable sources of data that we have in scientific inquiry. Uh, and I have seen far too much reliance during this coronavirus pandemic on observational studies. You know, well, I gave this drug to 50 of my patients and they all got better, so it must work. Mm-hmm. That is not a proper scientific inquiry.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you to both of our guests. And thank you to our listeners today for coming with us on a deep dive discussing Pfizer's development of a COVID 19 vaccine and what that means. My guests have been first from Pfizer, who is the senior director at Pfizer and the COVID vaccine global medical lead, David Swardlow. David, thank you so much for joining and for all of your great analysis on what's going on over there at Pfizer and then also what typically goes on with the FDA approval process and then what's going on
2: today. Thanks, it's been a pleasure.
0: And Representative Oliverson, I know you're very busy. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your day today to talk to our listeners. I know they really appreciated it, and thank you for everything that you do, both as a state legislator and as a medical professional.
1: It's my pleasure to join you, and thank you to Alec for putting this on.
0: And if you're interested in having your ideas featured on Alec Across the States, do not hesitate to email me at across states at alec.org. And please do rate this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us find some new listeners. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you for listening to Across the States, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council, the premier free market organization of and for legislators. To learn more about our work or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit alec.org. Tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at AlecStates. The views and opinions expressed on Across the States are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Legislative Exchange Council.